we'll, um, John will talk a little bit more about Andrea at the end of the service. Um, but for many of you in the second service, you have not experienced her leadership as much, but you have certainly experienced her impact on our worship ministry and on John in particular. But she's, she's been with this church since it was a brand new campus, something like 18 years ago. And so um, even if you don't know her, her, she has impacted everything about this campus and, and about this church. And so we're, we're so grateful. Um, <clears throat> and it always is worthwhile for me, I feel like, to take a second and comment on that we are, um, we are proud when people leave for the right reasons. Um, that's, that's not somehow a, a negative thing. It's, it's, I mean, it feels like a negative thing, it's, but it's not. It's, um, it's just our emotions that get the best of us. But the truth is, a victory in the kingdom is a victory for all of us. It's not like we're in competition um, uh, and, and so hopefully, Lord willing, God will, um, uh, God will continue to communicate that to our hearts and we'll, um, maybe, maybe there's someone who Andrea's, um, Andrea's example will encourage you to step up and lead in a, in a new and different way. But this isn't the only place um, that there is to worship. It's not the only place that there is to minister or to be ministered to. In fact, you may have noticed in your bulletins regularly uh, about once a month, there will be something in there about other things going on at other churches and other ministries. And um, we want you to be involved. Yes, if you're a member here, um, there are so many opportunities to minister here. A whole bunch of them are climbing around the playground right now. Um, and, and, but aside from that, there's so many different ways to get involved and invest, to greet and to welcome and to to serve in so many ways. And your Christian life needs that. There's also, yes, thank you. There's also, um, that's me. Uh, I was at the um, Caring for Kids thing for, um, uh, to, to, for the, um, thank you, Maglin Home. Wow, just there goes my name thing. Um, so the Maglin Home, which, uh, which we host here and many of us are involved in. In fact, I saw a number of people yesterday um, working out there as well. Um, I, I'd, I'd hate to do names, um, but... Uh, and these, these, by the way, are names. And with, with the name Leg, I, I've learned years ago not to, not to judge. But um, the roaches and the pigs were both there yesterday. And, um, and so were the Airmans and the, um, I wrote down a list because, again, my name issued. The Airmans, the Newberries. Um, I think Avco, Avco Roofing was out there, and they're well represented here. The Hodges. I know there are others that I'm not, didn't, I was only there for a little while. I'm getting to be dunked. And uh, there was a couple of you who, Man, you had a, a kind of a vendetta. There was like some church people from our church who spent a lot of dollars to dunk me over and over and over again. So um, I think I made a lot of money for the Maglin home yesterday. Um, that was fun. It was a little chilly, though, in the breeze. Let me just tell you, coming up out of the water. And by the way, that is an open, clear thing of the water. It was almost black, the water was. So don't think about the fact that the, the tub itself was clean until the Tyler water was sprayed into it by the fire department. So just... Again, I said, don't think about it. You're thinking about it. I told you not to. Um, um, okay, so here's part of how this plays out. Is we, um, and we do, Magdalene Home is one. It's a, a home for um, pregnant moms, young, especially young ones, um, who are essentially unwanted pregnant mothers. Um, not that the child is necessarily unwanted, but that the mom is. And so um, it's a powerful ministry. It's a small one numerically, but the depth of power is huge and um, it's a great one to be involved in. There are so many, so I couldn't even begin to, like I look across the audience and I see so many of you who represent different ministries and I want to list them all, but um, please, please make sure that you're involved not only here, but in other places in the kingdom. It will only enrich your life to do so. Um, and if you can't, if this church is not a good fit for you, I can recommend them. There are 
dozens of awesome churches in this community um, that if this is not the place where you can get involved and invest, come ask me. I will recommend you tell me what your passion is, and I'll tell you which church that is part of their passion. Um, and so all about that. We're, we're, that's to be silly to be in competition with other churches. So, um, so that's part of what we want to mention. But here's part of why that's important is because obedience is really, in the end, the only real measure of success for us as Christians. Um, we have frustrated as a staff and leadership frustrated many different consultants who have come and asked us for measures of success. And we continue to say um, obedience, doing what we really believe God has called us to do at the individual level, um, as the scripture commands us, or at the group level, all of us. And so, um, and they go, well, what about being mentioned in the newspaper? Um, I'm not kidding, that was one of them. Um, what about um, the number of people who come, or even like baptisms, or people who, who confess their faith, or who repent of their sins? And I'm like, oh, that's good. We love that, and we can record those numbers, and we love to watch those, and we certainly ask ourselves, what do these numbers mean? And we engage with them. But in the end, there are certainly ways to grow the numbers of a church and disobey God at the same time. And so fundamentally, sometimes when you obey God, your numbers go down. That's okay. That's our, in the end, as us as individuals and as a, as a body, we have to come back to that. Um, we cannot trust our own vision well enough um, that, to supersede any of the measurements other than what God has for us. And so that's the thing we have to trust in. We are constantly looking for things that seem right in our own eyes. Um, and consistently, they are not. Um, they, they cripple us and they undermine us and we're lucky to get out alive. Um, and sometimes we don't get out alive. Um, it, is, it is vital that we continue to engage with something different. So I said Samson throws down a gauntlet. It is not the gauntlet of, hey, live life like I lived it. That's not, the, that's not the gauntlet of Samson. It is, can you learn from a life that he could not learn from, meaning his own? Um, can you learn something from his life that he is not able to learn from? We don't obey uh, because our disobedience is capable of thwarting God. You're going to see that in living color here. We obey because God, it, it is better to do so because God is God and he's still worthy of our obedience, um, even if it means getting dunked in nasty water. So, um, okay, so we don't trust. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. That phrase, right in my eyes, probably is one that, you know, we need to have stamped on the inside of our eyes to remind us. Right in my eyes is not trustworthy. It's not. We're going to talk a little bit about the flesh. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there today, but that is the biblical concept of right in my eyes. Um, so anytime you're reading the Apostle Paul and, or Jesus Christ and they're referencing the flesh, it's talking about that innate desire that each of us have to just feel better. I'm, I'm tired, I'm angry, I'm sick, I'm whatever. And, and, and that's, we want to just be patted on the head and feel, oh, we want you to feel better. We feel discouraged or despair or whatever. So we just, we want to do something to make us feel better. And, and that is the flesh. And we're going to see how foolish it is to follow that, what is right in our own eyes. Our own eyes are so limited in scope and sight and perspective. Um, our vision is blurred by our addictions and our opinions and our, all that kind of stuff. And, that, and perspective, by the way, matters. Um, I'm not going into it today, but it's such a great um, picture. When, when I was on part of my sabbatical and I, I wanted to climb up on one of the mountains and I, and I did around where I was and then, um, and then walking back down, um, it looked like I'd found a good path down there and I hit this place where it is just wall to wall like Vietnam, jungle, brambles. I mean, I'm, I am not getting through this. And so 
I, I walked along the edge of it and finally gave up and had to climb all the way back up to the top of the mountain so that I could look down with the proper perspective to see where there was a way down and around. Perspective matters. When you have the better perspective, you have a better understanding. That's why you can't, we can't trust ourselves. Our perspective stinks. Um, God's is really, really good. So we ask for his vision and his understanding. Um, as Rich Mullins, I, I referenced him last week, but I want to reference again Rich Mullins, the song Maker of Noses. Um, this is just great poetry. They said, boy, I think you have that. Um, they said, boy, you just follow your heart. But my heart just led me to my own chest. The, the absurdity of that. They said, boy, you just follow your nose. And the direction changed every time I went and turned my head. And they said, boy, you just follow your dreams. But my dreams were only misty notions. But the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams, he's the one I have chosen and I will follow him. This is the correct perspective. He has the right one, we don't. So Judges 14.4 tells us that the father and mother um, who had fought against this idea of this woman from Timnah, um, this Philistine woman from Timnah, they had fought against this idea. But 14.4 says his father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So notice, by the way, weirdly, the people of Israel do not cry out this time. They're under the slavery of the Philistines, and they honestly seem kind of content in that. In this case, not only is God saving them from the Philistines, but he's going to save them from themselves, and this is not going to be a pretty experience for anyone. Um, this is an awful era in history and an awful place. It is a it is a, just a grotesque, broken, sinful, bloodthirsty era during this period of time and in this place. And we're going to get to see that played out today and next week. But I'm driven crazy by this verse because it seems to say that God is the one causing Samson to sin so that God can go and pick a fight, right? Some commentaries think that the he in this passage is Samson. And that's plausible, I guess. That in fact, it wasn't that Samson is attracted to this woman from Timnah. It's that he sees her as a good opportunity to go and pick a fight, right? Um, I, I don't think that's the best interpretation of this for two reasons. One, I've never, I don't think Samson needs a reason to pick a fight. It just doesn't seem like that's the case for Samson. Um, he, he picks a fight whenever he feels like it. That, I don't see him needing some justification. But more importantly, this would require Samson to be strategically considering how to create a problem between himself and the Philistines. And I don't see anything in Samson that implies that he has the capacity to think strategically. He is an impulsive, um, quick-acting, attention deficit. I mean, you whatever words you want to put there, he, he is impetuous. He responds in the moment. He has a flash temper. Essentially, Samson is, a, is a, just a bigger child. Um, discipleship, I will tell you, we, years ago, a good friend and I developed a discipleship program because we were, to quote what we were saying back and forth to each other, we were tired of day after day after day just dealing with older boys. Boys in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, and, but they're not. Being a man is not about not being a woman, as, as our own Paul McKenzie once said, first time I ever heard this said. It's not about not being a woman. It's about not being a boy, um, putting away childish things. And so what you have in Samson is someone who has not put away childish things. I just don't see him even maliciously being strategic, uh, much less obediently being strategic. That's my opinion. I think this is, in fact, God not allowing Samson to be rescued from his sin. Samson is doing this. The parents say, don't do this. And God says, you know what? I'm not willing to step in. 
I'm not going to cut this off because this is all playing into the big plan. I'm going to use Samson to start to set my people free of the Philistines, whether they want to be set free or not. And this is something, I'm going to use this opportunity. I don't think it's necessary for this language to think that somehow God sparked Samson's interest in the woman from Timnah. But instead, God is not willing to keep Samson from walking into this bear trap of the rest of his life, essentially, with this woman in Timnah. God is not willing to rescue Samson or the Philistines from this. Instead, he's going to use this to accomplish his plan. That's what I think is going on here. There is, we don't thwart God's plan with our disobedience. But we don't get to be involved in the best parts of God's plan. That's what I think is the problem. Anyway, I am driven crazy by this verse, but I think it's still understandable. God is going to accomplish, accomplishing this with God and Samson in some kind of holy accord is not going to happen. That's not Samson. Samson's not capable of that, not willing to do that. God is, and so God's going to accomplish it through his own holy accord with himself. <clears throat> so Samson goes down to Timnah. This phrase is repeated numerous times in this passage, um, so I want to explain it. Um, and, and I think this is very applicable to us. Remember I talked about sometimes the hardest thing in the book of Judges is finding application. So when I find it, I'm going to plant on there for just a second. So here you have Samson going down to Timnah to meet with this woman who he, it's the, it, at some level, marries. It's kind of hard to say exactly what happens here, but at some level he marries her, but he goes down to Timnah. And for the Jewish audience, this phrase, going down to Timnah, is significant. It's referencing something called the Shephelah. So Samson lived up in the hill country, probably even, maybe even all the way up in the northern regions of Dan. Being a Philistine, this woman would have been raised or would have been from the coastal cities. So Gaza, um, Ashdod, Ashkelon, those are all, Gaza, those are all um, Philistine cities. Remember I said they lived on the coastline. So between the hill country where the holy people of God lived and the coastal plains, which is where the enemies of God live, there is the Shephelah. All throughout Scripture during this whole era of judges and kings and on, the Shephelah has a very important rabbinical significance, a teaching significance. And that is, there's only two appropriate, there's only two reasons, excuse me, not appropriate, two reasons to be for a Jewish person to be in the Shephelah. The Shephelah, that, that field area, the, the plains area. In fact, I know this is kind of hard to see, but um, if you'll do the next one, um, I hope you can kind of see that. You're looking from the top of Mount Azekah. Azekah is where the people of Israel were when they fought Goliath and his army. Okay? For, so for 40 days, they stood up here. That's looking out towards the coast, the Mediterranean Sea. Notice how it's, if you could, if you could see it really well, it drops off and gets really flat out. And then it just continues kind of flat down to the coastlands and then the sea. This is the Shephelah. There's only two good reasons for the Jew, only two reasons why a Jewish person um, from this era would be in the Shephelah. What are they? Why would someone, why would it be, why would someone, a Jewish person, why would they be in this area connecting the property of their enemies to their property? Go ahead. It's okay. You can call it. If you have to say it loud, because otherwise it dies somewhere around here. Your voice is, I don't know, I'm telling you, this room is set up and it's magic. <laughs> it's like right, I mean, right about here. I can be out there and hear everyone singing and John's up here on stage going like, where did they all go? It's, you're singing. It's just, we're all, anyway. So you got to shout it out. you got to be willing to have a little guts here. War. Okay, one good reason and the only appropriate reason for being in the Shephelah is to fight. 
is that you're going there to, to do what God has called, to live out the will of God. And to, in this case, in that period of time, it was to fight the Philistines. If you're there to fight the Philistines, that's acceptable. That's a good reason to be in the Shephelah, um, is you go down to fight. That's what David is doing. That's where he goes down in here to fight Goliath. Make sense? The people of Philistine, the Philistines have come from the coast. David has come from up on this hilltop in Ezekiel. He goes down. There's a valley that still has a little stream running through it to this day. And you can go there and, and see it. Somewhere in here, David went toe-to-toe with Goliath right in here. What's the other reason why a Jewish person would be in the Shephelah? Nobody? To sin. The other reason that a Jewish person is in the Shephelah is they're on their way to sin. When you see the phrase in the Jewish language that someone, that an Israelite went down to, and they name a place in the Shephelah or on the coastal region, what they're saying is the next phrase either to be in order to fight against or you know they're on their way to sin. Samson is going down into Timnah and he does not have on his mind the holy things of God. He has no business being there. This is the compromise region. And, and so it, it kind of felt like, you know, if you're kind of more from the old school um, kind of Baptist mentality, a certain, nothing like a sermon on sin to, you know, to get you encouraged. But so today is one. Um, this is the this, this, so you have this Colossians 1, 21 through 23 is considered kind of a Shephelah passage um, from the New Testament as well. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, coastline, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, hill country. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. So though you have shifted your location from the coastline to the hill country, make sure that you're not shifting back into the Shephelah. If you continue to live up here, then you're living out the gospel. That's what that's for. Unless, of course, by the way, I would say, unless it's an act of ministry. Ministry can cause us to be found in the Shephelah. That's our version of fighting, declaring war on the enemy. There is a time to be down in the rough parts in an effort to accomplish ministry. Um, I always, though, here's the deal. I just want to let you know this. If you're in the Shephelah to accomplish ministry, you will not resent being questioned on your motives. So when you have that friend who's like, oh, the reason I go to that place is to accomplish ministry, and you go, mm, doubt it. I think you're going there because it's a provision for the flesh for you. Their response to that will tell you a lot about why they're really in the Shephelah. If they're like, man, you make a great point. Let me tell you, here's the things I put in my, here's what, here's what I'm trying to do to protect me. Here's what, yeah, okay, maybe that person is legit. If they start saying, how dare you question my motives? Uh-huh. I have a funny feeling. You're not questioning your motives enough. Anyway, Samson is here to compromise. He's here to sin. This is a provision for his flesh. This is like David looking over the rooftops of the city, finding the opportunity to make a provision for his flesh. They're playing with fire, and it's going to cost them. They will find themselves there. 
Um, I'll take a second and comment on this since I did in the the first service. Um, I wasn't planning on it. but So when I teach on this stuff, by the way, to young people in particular, but to all of us, it's valuable, I think. Um, I usually take them to a set of stairs. And, and what I do is, you can pick any, anything, but for young people especially, talking about sexual sin um, is really hitting home for them. It is for all of us, um, but this is sometimes a new battle for them. And so I'll say, like, I want you to imagine that the, the top floor, the top step, this is only four steps, so it doesn't work well, but if you imagine, you know, 20 steps, the top step is, you know, holding hands with somebody. Probably not sin, Right? I mean, <laughs> unless you're married to someone else, in which case it may be, right? Um, but under normal single people, that's probably not. And so what I do is I walk down, and you guys know me well, know I'm not squeamish. I'm not going to do it in here, but I go down step by step, and we label every single step all the way down. And so, and I'm like, okay, I want a hand raised. Like, is this sin? Is this sin? Is this sin? And we get, finally get to a step where everybody agrees this is sin. Everybody agrees. And by the way, it's pretty much been the same for 20-something years while I've been doing it. We're pretty, still in the same place on that. So then I go, okay, good. Well, let's take one step back up, and I take my shoe off, and I set it in that spot. Go, there, there you go. This, this is the last thing you can do that we all agree may not, be, at least may not be sin. And then I have a guy, hopefully one with a girlfriend, and I have him go up to the top step. And I say, okay, I want to see how fast you can get down to the bottom of the steps, which everyone laughs about because, you know, sounds bad. And so he starts charging down the steps, and when he puts his foot on that step, one step above sin, I say, stop! What does he do? Yeah, boom, 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 boom. Three more steps, four more steps. Because the truth is there's a progressive nature to sin in our lives. It draws us forward. The flesh is going, but this is nice. This feels good. I feel better. I'm no longer feeling lonely or sad or angry or tired or hungry or whatever it is that I'm trying to cure for myself. And we get to boom, boom, boom. Or, or even maybe another way to think of it is this is why we don't live in the shafela. We don't live in a state of, of right on the line of compromise. If we do, if we go, okay, so we agree this is this is maybe not sin, but we all agree this is, this is sin. We're all, okay, we're all in agreement, good. What's the problem of living here? What's the problem in saying, I'm going to live right here, one step above sin? What's the problem? What does it require of you? Self-control? What kind of self-control? Flawless self-control? Anybody got that? Show of hands. Yeah, I need, to be, I need to be taught by somebody who has flawless self-control, right? Yeah, I didn't think so. No one has flawless self-control. That's not part of what it means to be a fallen human being, even one who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That flesh is still there. We, none of us are flawless. So we go, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make camp right here, right outside the enemy's gates. Guess what? You will take that step. It's just a part of human nature. I'm not saying that we don't live in grace. This isn't some kind of weird legalism. We live in grace. This isn't sin. It isn't sin. And even if we do sin, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he's already covered for that sin. But we don't want to live where we're not living the free life God has called us to. And so we don't want to take that step. God is still holy and righteous and worthy of us living a holy life to the degree we can do that through the Holy Spirit. And so we're, we're that, that's, a, that's still the thing. We go, oh, we better, take a, better live a couple of steps up, not right above it. still think there's wisdom in that. I'm not canceling out grace in any way. I'm just talking about integrating wisdom into a life of grace. Samson doesn't do this. Samson spends his time in the Shephelah or even in the enemy's camp. And while he's there, he falls in love with a girl. That's, we're, gonna, we're not going to get to Delilah today probably, but I will tell you, one of the rules I tell young people all the time is you cannot control who you fall in love with. 
You can only control who you spend time with. That's why we have to have those guidelines. It's why it's not a matter of legalism that causes me to not meet with a woman one-on-one in a public setting, a coffee house, or some other romantic setting. That's not, that's, that's, I don't do that because I'm somehow afraid of something except I just respect the fact that I don't want to live on the border. That's why you won't see me riding in a car with a woman who I'm not married to uh, or related to. That's, that's kind of the, that's so rare. It happened a few times in the last 20-something years ever. And those have all been like, my car died or something. Like it's, and those even get a phone call. I'm, hey, Jen, just so you'll know, if somebody calls you and says, I just saw Chris with somebody. In the-. Yes, good. I'm telling you, you're going to be able to say like, yes, it's, here's why. So like we don't, th- there's no reason to compromise on it. It's part of why Billy Graham is one of the only ministers to make it for decades without falling in sin is because he was wise in his understanding of grace as well. It, 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 the attempts made to bring him down are off the charts when you read about him, but but some of these boundaries, these are just healthy. I'm not telling you you have to have them. That's between you and God. But I promise you there's some place in your life that you know is shefela for you. This is, this is me compromising. The only reason I should be here is to minister. Otherwise, I need to get the heck out. Right? You know what that is. It's why my phones and my iPads, they don't get on the Internet. You take my phone, you try to, get, try to search something, you're going to be disappointed. You can't get there. Why all my computers have have filters on them. Part of why this is on my brain is we're going to have a life group in the spring that is for people breaking free of the the bonds of pornography. This is a real, real, real issue. The research is that the vast majority of men and now the significant majority of women are engaging in an unhealthy way with the internet and the other things that it offers us there um, on a regular basis. So we, we need this to be set free. The power of God is to set us free of our sin now not just when we die. So I know I've spent a lot of time here talking about the Shephelah. This is partially, it, it gives us the picture of who Samson was. Samson is going to spend a lot of his life in and out of the Shephelah. And every time he goes and walks through it, he gets him in trouble. Um, except when he's fighting, and sometimes that does too. So I want to take a second there. My last word on this is this, mom and dad. If you are not making sure you are the voice of right and wrong, about moral issues like sex, someone will be. I promise you someone will be the voice of right and wrong for your kids about sex. And the fact that you feel awkward talking about it, welcome to the club, everyone does. Um, I talk about it at a professional level, and it still is awkward to talk about it with my own children. But someone's got to be that voice. If it's not you, it will be someone. And none of the other voices are trustworthy. If you don't know how to do that, or you're like, I'm totally lost with that, that's great. I will happily talk with you about it. Or there's actually have articles on the website about um, how to talk with your kids about this stuff. Someone's going to be that voice. It better be us. So just saying. All right. Um, Now, so Samson is not here to fight. He's here to sin. Um, God seems to be showing Samson what he's capable of in multiple ways. Because when Samson comes down, on his way down there, a young lion attacks him. Now, here's what's interesting Um, This is probably a big metaphor. I mean, I think it really happened, but I also think it's a big metaphor that Samson, of course, completely misses. Uh, Remember how we talked about how the Philistines dressed in such a way to make themselves look like lions. And so here you have a young lion. It actually says a young lion. I don't think that's an accident. A young, prideful, arrogant, headstrong, powerful creature who's walking around roaring and picking fights with people, and he runs into God and God's agent in Samson, and he attacks Samson, and Samson tears it to pieces. 
Samson not being the introspective type, of course, is not going to connect himself to this story. We can. We need to be looking for those parables. Samson's not doing that. And so we can maybe connect that to ourselves as well in some way. But Samson tears it to pieces, um, and he goes on down. Um, it tells us he goes on down to Timnah, and they, they do all this stuff. So let's see. If I get um, down in 14.8, um, they've done this little stuff. They're about to go do the ceremony. And this time, Samson, it tells us in 14.8 and 9, after some days, he returned to take her. Apparently, it had been a while, which is not uncommon. Um, he get down to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. Um, this, this is probably not picturing a rotting, should, probably shouldn't picture a rotting corpse here. It's probably skeleton um, by this point. That happens quickly over there. Um, and bees typically don't, don't grow in dead things. So more likely, they do in skeletons. Um, so he scraped it out with his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Yes, the language there is meant to be kind of gross, I think. It's, it's not just that he, he, he stuck a stick somewhere into the skeleton and kind of got a little honey out. It's that he scraped, like the imagery is supposed to be that he ran his hand down the inside of a dead lion and grabbed out some honey and shared it with his family without telling him where it had come from, right? So again, more things to like about Samson. Um, but what's the problem? So let's say, let's say this, was a, this, was a, this counts as a dead thing. What difference does it make that Samson is running his hand down the inside of a dead animal? Why does that matter? Anybody? What's that? Right, he's a Nazarite. Remember, there are three rules for the Nazarite. What are the three rules? Okay, don't drink wine. Actually, nothing from grapevine. You can't have anything from the grapevine. Number two, don't cut your hair. Number three, don't touch dead things. And remember we talked about how that really didn't seem all that hard. Like, I mean, is that the kind of like, oh, no more touching dead things. <laughs> God, I got to give that up now? Man, just one sacrifice after another for God. No more touching dead things. Um, I think we can assume that in every one of the parties that we hear about that Samson is at, he's drinking. Um, the language is not uh, obvious, but I, th I think we can assume that that the, the first one, the no, nothing from the grapevine, he has flagrantly broken multiple times in his life by this time. So Samson makes a riddle um, out of the honey. Um, it is funny that we do get in this little passage, by the way. Samson's going down for his wedding. And it tells us that the bride had to provide 30 companions for him. So apparently all of Samson's good friends couldn't show that day which means probably that Samson didn't have any good friends. Um, also, which you would expect, right? Samson doesn't have friends who are willing to speak the truth to him. His parents try, but he doesn't have a lot of friends for this. Um, it may also indicate that the people of Israel were not pleased with a leader among them marrying a Philistine. It may also imply that the Philistines weren't pleased with it either, so the bride had to kind of hire 30 friends. So in a fun moment with 30 friends, um, Samson makes a little riddle, and he makes a wager with them about um, garments of clothes. There's 30 of them, so each of them will have to give him one garment of clothes if they can't solve his riddle, and he's going to have to give um, each of them, which means 30 are garments of clothes from him. That would be a fortune um, to them. And so he makes his little out of the um, eater something to eat, out of the killer something sweet? What is it? Out of the strong. Thank you. Out of the strong something sweet. Thank you. And so he um, I, kept, I forgot to write that down between the services, too. I just had it. Usually it's off the top of my head. But 
Um, and so he tells us a little riddle. They can't guess it. Finally, I'm not kidding you, they threaten to burn his wife, his new wife, and their whole family to death if she won't tell them. So she goes to Samson. She finally gets Samson to tell her um, all of this. She begs and begs and begs. Um, this brutal, brutal, bloody society. Samson is, of course, Samson is king of this land um, in some ways because of all the bloody, brutal, awful things going on. He's the best at it. So that's what we're facing here. He's surrounded with this. They're threatening to kill him. She's begging and crying. Samson finally tells her. Um, she finally tells um, his enemies or these 30 friends. Um, it, is, it is significant, by the way. I'll just take a second and say, the tale of this woman and Eve and Delilah and Esther and others, good and bad, showed how powerful a woman can be in a man's life. That no matter how strong the man is, his female counterpart is very, very powerful in his life. And that's a good thing. It's intended to be a good thing. I mean, it's intended to be something where their power is unified. They are both drawing each other in the same direction, nearer to Christ. To the degree someone draws you nearer to Christ, they are your friend. And so as she is drawing him nearer to Christ, and he is drawing her nearer to Christ, and they're growing together in this strength, their power is multiplied. Very often in marriage counseling, the issue is that both of them come in and they feel powerless to change things. And, and I always say, like, well, you're doing a good job now of making his life miserable. That's an expression of power. You're doing a good job now of making her life miserable. Apparently, you've got some kind of power in her life. Otherwise, y'all would both be fine. But the truth is, you're both being greatly impacted by each other. What if we took those powers and began to use them for good? That would be a really cool thing. And so that's part of what marriage counseling is, is teaching them to take the same energy that they're using to destroy each other and figuring out a way to invest in each other, to put their treasure in each other, that's, that's, that, that power is there. And this is not a bad thing. It is meant to be a good thing. Sometimes it leads to into bad stuff. Um, I will tell you, um, when my wife is pleased with me, when my wife is proud of me, I am 90% content. When my wife is not, I am 90% not. Um, I, I mentioned last service that there was a time in my life, which I won't go into details with, when I was facing a really, really hard thing um, in the ministry. I was working in a very, very hard thing, and it was day after day after day, and it was, there was so much disagreement and so much challenge and so much hardship in the midst of it, and I was really trying to hold my ground and, and um, coming home every day and debriefing with my wife. I don't know about you guys, but I, I don't, to some degree, it's almost like things don't really happen until I talk with Ginger about them. I don't know if that, you have that same thing in your marriage, but... It doesn't feel fully real until she and I have talked about it. But, and so I'm telling her about it. At the end of one of these days, she says, I just, she stopped me. She's like, I just want you to know how proud I am of you. I, I don't think one man in 10,000 would handle this the way you have. And I think you're, that's huge. And so I went in the next morning to all these other men. who I loved these men, and, and, and we were on the same page in so many ways, but this was just a hard time. And went in for expecting another nine hours of fighting amongst ourselves. And... Uh, and when they said, you seem, you seem to be feeling better today, and I was like, oh, yeah, Ginger's proud of me. And uh, so kind of forget you guys, right? <laughs> it doesn't really matter what y'all think of me because she's proud of me. And what's funny is every one of them was like, yeah, we get that. You know, all married men were like, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, there's something very powerful there. So we see this played out um, in this situation, just a little rabbit trail there. But as we come back to it, um, Samson loses the riddle game. And so he goes to another um, Philistine city and murders 30 men and steals their clothes to pay off his bet 
because as you know, it's immoral to Welsh on a bet. So um, we, wouldn't want, we wouldn't want Samson to do that. Um, this is flat murder, unjustifiable, absolutely unbiblical, unsound murder and theft. How do we know? And by the way, Samson knows it. We know this because when Samson goes back, uh, however long later, to, by the way, this is the first time he's going back to re-engage with his new, quote, wife, whatever actually happened there. When he comes back to sleep with his new wife, he finds that her father has given this wife to one of those 30 men who she had picked to come to the party. You know, oops. And Samson says, Judges 15.3, this time I will be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. What is it clear that Samson knows about the first time that he did them harm? That he was not innocent. Samson murdered these 30 men and he knows he did. He knows it was wrong. Now he has cause. They stole his wife, who he, by the way, hadn't been to see in days, weeks, months since the wedding because he was mad about the whole, um, it is, he called it plowing with his heifer. That's a there's another kind thing to say about your young wife, right? Uh, plowing with it. So they stole his wife, so he burns all their crops. Not kidding. You may have heard this. By catching a bunch of foxes and jackals, probably jackals um, in that region, catching a bunch of foxes or jackals, tying their tails together with a torch between them and then lighting them on fire. Who thinks of this? I mean, who, what kind of a twisted brain goes, ah, you know what would work is to catch a bunch of poor, innocent animals and set them on fire and send them running through the fields of the Philistines hundred of them. And just, it's mind-boggling that anybody's brain would go here, but it does. He burns down all their fields, which probably, by the way, pretty much guarantees the death by starvation of hundreds of Philistines, um, or that they're going to now have to come steal the Israelites' food. Um, again, I don't think he thought this through all that much. I think he just does it. He attacks. They show up to confront him because they now have burned to death his little wife, whatever her, she really was at this point, and her father and her whole family. So the Philistines, in response, burned them alive. And, and then they come back, and, and Saul, Samson is mad about this, so Samson attacks them and, quote, 15.8, struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and, they went, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. So um, we see that in 15.8. Probably, it's hard to know for sure what the language struck them hip and thigh uh, means it may just be struck them about the head and shoulders. It may just be something like like a, an idiom we would use to say he just beat the daylights out of them, or he crushed them, or he, he where anywhere he could hit them, he hit them. He hit them where it hurt most, or whatever. But it may also mean, by the way, the language may mean he killed the prime warriors of Philistia. It could mean that he was facing Philistia's best and he just wiped them out. Um, either way, he then goes and hides in a defensible place, like a, a, literally kind of a cleft in the rock. He finds a hole, um, a little bit of a cave, and, and he hides there, and he sends out a message, if you're done, I'm done. Like, I don't, I don't have to do anything more here if you're willing to stop. So he goes and hides and waits to see if the Philistines are done, and they aren't. So they go to the Israelites and say, hey, did you forget you're our slaves? Um, so the Israelites go to find Samson. The Philistines are scared to go meet him after a thousand of them have been killed. No wonder, or, or after hundreds of them probably been killed, it'll be a thousand soon. Um, goes to fight, find him. The people of Israel come to gather him. Three thousand, if I remember correctly, Israelites show up to bind him. And he says, are you going to kill me or are you just going to bind me? They say, we promise not to touch you, just to tie you up. 
They tie him up. The Philistines show up. He comes out, and when he gets amongst the Philistines, it says, So in a high rocky place with the presumed help of 3,000 men of Judah, who stood and watched a lot of Philistines probably died. I put this, this is what I wrote to myself, by the way. A lot of Philistines probably died in some very creative Quentin Tarantino type of ways for the next few hours. Um, So it says, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. This is important, the language here, a fresh jawbone. If scraping the inside of the lion skeleton was not breaking the Nazarite vow, this one certainly is. This is a fresh jawbone. That means it is still in the state of rotting. Um, A fresh jawbone of a donkey put his hand on it, and with it he struck a thousand men. Presumably struck here means killed a thousand men, apparently, while 3,000 men of Judah watched and didn't jump in on either side. They're not sure which side to get in on this. Welcome to the people of Judah at this time period. A bunch of cowards that they are. They're not going to help Samson, and they're not going to help the Philistines, who probably thought they were going to help them. So this is what's wild to me. Again, at the end of slaying a thousand people, I'm imagining Samson standing there, covered with gore, head to toe, thousands, a thousand bodies laying all around him in this area. Probably the people of Israel have now left. They got tired of watching him kill Philistines at some point. And so he's standing there, and, and he thinks this is the perfect moment for a pun. So he says, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. The word donkey and heap are essentially the same Hebrew word. This is a, little, a funny little limerick with a pun in the middle of it. That's Samson's response. Yeah, there's the jawbone. That's Samson's response to killing a thousand people with a piece of rotting animal parts. Um, All right. Then we get the first of two prayers of Samson. We get two. Here's one. You have granted this great salvation, 1518, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Maybe this is God teaching Samson something, that at the end of this great victory, Samson's thirsty, and he realizes, I can't do this without God. At some point, he certainly seems to recognize that God is the one who granted this great battle, who saved Samson from the Philistines, and yet this isn't a, so God, um, sorry about the murders. Hey, God, sorry about um, marrying a woman who your law says we shouldn't marry. Hey, God, sorry about spending all my time in the city of the Philistines. And the, This is, still comes across as a childish, self-absorbed, egocentric, narcissistic. Okay, you've done this great thing, God, but what have you done for me lately? Now I'm thirsty. When are you, you going to give me some water? And let me just tell you, this says a lot about Samson's character, but here's what strikes me. This still isn't really about Samson's character. Because God, we learned something about God's character in that despite all of this, God still gives Samson water. I mean, this is one of the most graceful things that God does in the whole Bible is to tolerate this whiny child man in this moment and to give him water. It's really very encouraging, even though it doesn't, it it feels like, really? At the same point to think, maybe he listens to my whiny prayers too. (coughs) So he judges for another 20 years. With a thousand of their best dead, um, probably everyone else unwilling, the Philistines stay quiet for a long time. At some point, though, 
Now, there's a little more stories, and they escalate. This may have been during the priesthood of Eli. At this point, we're getting there. The days of Boaz and Ruth, perhaps. Because the next thing that's going to happen is that, is that Samson is going to go and find a Philistine prostitute for himself. Just this story comes out of nowhere. Um, this maybe is a common practice for Samson. Maybe he, this is, which would not surprise me at all. And in fact, I think probably is. So he goes and hires a prostitute among the Philistines. They find out he's there. So they wall up the city. They close the gates. They gather the men. But apparently while they're making their strategy plans to get Samson when he comes out from his time with the prostitute, Samson leaves and just walks to the city gates, which are now locked to him, barred, everything. And he just takes the city gates hinges, bar, and all, tears them off of the wall, carries them up the top of the hill, and leaves it up there. Now again, this, this is an amazing, seems just a prideful, arrogant usage of the power that God has given him to teach them a little lesson. How dare you close the gates on Samson? Um, but it's, it's still an amazing expression of what, God, what Samson is capable of when God fills him with power, um, is that he escapes their trap here. That being said, let me comment. Um, you can tell this is still the middle of the account where we're stopping here because we're going to pick up with Delilah um, next week. Delilah is one of those examples um, in the Bible that it's hard for us to read because it, is, it just seems unreal that Samson would be so wall-eyed, ridiculously um, of an idiot to buy into and fall for everything that happens with the story of Delilah. It references back to what we've talked about before in that power, and yet at the same time, really? If you haven't read it, I want to encourage you to read it. Um, I would encourage you, and, and it's a good time for us to be thinking and looking at our own lives and saying, where have I made a provision for the flesh? Um, where have I, um, I left whatever it is, access to myself for sin? Where am I living one step or even on the step? Uh, most of us have things in our lives right now that probably need to not be there. There are places where we are camping in the Shafela, where we need to, there's things that we are angry about. Um, our snap temper that just rumbles right under the surface is usually an indication. Um, the fact that, that we, there, there's probably, um, there are books or magazines or websites that need to get out of your life completely. There may even be access, parts, access points to, to things that you know are sin, the Shafela, that need to be gone. There are probably relationships that you know perfectly well need to end. You know you have no business being in that relationship. But we convince ourselves, just like Samson does with Delilah, that there could be a happy ending to this story. And we're lying to ourselves. May God accomplish something through it anyway? Sure, he's God. But that's, that's not what we are called to. This is the, I don't, I don't know what it is. This is between you and God. Um, the emphasis at this point in the story is still sin. That's how you know you're in the middle. And we'll finish it up. Because the, the redemption part of the story, which all of God's stories include, um, hasn't happened yet. Um, but this is, that's where we are. So that's a good place for us to be. Let's wrestle with that this week. Um, the, the tension created by looking at our own lives and being introspective enough and saying, okay, Samson, Samson may not be a good example of someone I should follow, but he is a good example of someone I should be able to learn from. What is it in my life that has put me in the same path? Um, I, I was talk, just talking to some good friends last night and saying it's our natural tendency to think that um, you know, when good things are happening, that's the path, and when bad things are happening, that's a dead end. Um, don't buy into that. It's all part of the path. But the bad things are usually a sign for us of being able to say, 
maybe I should get off this path. So whatever that is, let this be between you and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. I'm going to pray for us. Father, um, we thank you and appreciate you for the power of your word and the role of your Holy Spirit in illuminating that word in our hearts. God, I don't, I don't know what that is for each other person in this room. I know some of the things that it means for me. Um, Lord, you know, and I pray that your spirit even now is speaking into the hearts of the men and women here. Whatever our version of Shephela, compromise is, um, I pray that you would challenge us and reveal it to us. Is it not ministering? Is it not being involved? Is it only living the Christian life for a few hours on Sunday morning? Um, you know. Is it inappropriate relationships? In a room this size, there are going to be men and women involved in, in illicit affairs. God, they know from your spirit to walk away. All of us, Lord, we have examples of this in our life. And I pray that we wouldn't wait till it was too late to get out of the Shephela and back into your holy country where we experience your blessings at a new level. That we get to work with you in ministry and not you working despite us uh, quite so much. God, it's hard to talk about, but I, I pray that your spirit, who we have confidence in, will speak to our hearts. In the name of your son, amen.